I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. How do you navigate the messy world of voting and politics while trying to be a faithful Catholic? Great question. Stay tuned to find out. I am going to say something pretty radical here, but in preparation for this episode and all the research I've done, I think that we should get rid of democracy. So all in favor, raise your hand. Little political joke for you there. Welcome to episode 64. We're so glad that you are joining us for this podcast. I know I use we a lot with Jenna not being here, and she almost was able to get back for this episode, but was just having... Some stuff going on, wasn't feeling very well on the day we wanted to record, so um, she will be back, I promise. Um, however, um, I've, I, I use that we because I know she's here in spirit, and the Lord is here, obviously, so I hope that isn't too uh, in violence toward your rules for English grammar or whatever it may be. But anyways, I'm so glad that you could join us for this very important episode. Um, So before we get into it, I want to go into Peak Pit Plug and then give a disclaimer about the episode and then get into it because there's a lot of good information here that I think will really be beneficial uh, for people who are navigating this election cycle. Also, totally fully aware that this is coming out uh, a dollar short and a day late, as the saying goes, or if I messed it up, whatever, um, because our primary will have passed in California when this comes out. However, I know we have a lot of listeners across the country, so hopefully this will benefit you, and I hope it will inform all of us as we look toward the presidential election this fall. So uh, peak, my peak of these this past two weeks um, has been Lent. Lent has been really fruitful so far. God is working. Um, and also shout out to Nora from my parish for listening to the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and I'm recording today on March 4th, which is the feast day of St. Casimir, who's my confirmation saint. So uh, that's pretty awesome. So a lot of stuff to thank the Lord about. Um, Pit is that you can probably hear it in my voice. My allergies are so terrible, and I think I may have damaged my voice a little bit from coughing because of them. So please pray for my healing. Um, it is not fun to not be able to sing, not be able to talk uh, for long periods of time without feeling really hoarse. Uh, so hopefully I will be uh, understandable by the end of this podcast episode. Uh, we can only hope. And my plug, um, you're going to be getting a lot of book plugs, I think, for Lent because uh, part of my Lenten um, you know, practices is to fast from things so I have more time to read and invest in spiritual reading. And so um, I've already read quite a few books, but I have to recommend is a book I read before, a book I just reread for Lent, um, the best book on the Holy Spirit I've ever read in my entire life. It's a book called Forgotten God by Francis Chan. He's a uh, evangelical pastor or non-denominational pastor, um, but it's the best book on confirmation I've ever read. And the word confirmation is not anywhere in it because it's just so such a good, accurate depiction of the Holy Spirit. So if you're looking for a good book on the Holy Spirit, very easy to read, and every line, I swear, is like a tweet. It's just like so, like, boom, mic drop, every single sentence. So um, it's just soaked in wisdom. So I just want to recommend that to you. Um, And yeah, without further ado, let's get into the episode. So I want to give a disclaimer for this episode. Um, 
This episode involves topics that are very heated issues, things that people can be very passionate, uh, very argumentative, very divisive um, about. And so I want to first and foremost say that if this episode is not helpful or in any way feels like it's contrary to your conscience or contrary to what you believe uh, is living out your faith um, accurately, then feel free to ignore everything that I'm saying. However, I want to caveat this with, I'm not going to be offering uh, opinion. Uh, my own opinion or anything like that. I'm I for this episode particularly looked to what do the authority of the church, what does the authority of the church say on these matters, uh, looking particularly toward um, the ecclesial documents of the church and how that has been realized in documents by our bishops in the United States. I know there's people listening from other countries, and so if you are, I want to encourage you uh, see if your bishops of your country or your region have put together any type of document on forming good consciences um, about citizenship, about voting, about politics. Um, So I'll say things um, that are general, that applies to the whole church, and then I'll let you know when I'm talking specifically about this document from the United States. And then I will do my best to also let you know if I'm elaborating on that in terms of my own opinion. But my, uh, my hope and my goal for this episode is to say no more than what the church has taught, but also to say no less, to give you a very extensive Uh, view of what the church in its ecclesial authority, so the voice of the Pope and uh, realized through the bishops, have said. Now, you may have heard something different from some priest in the confessional or some friend or some podcast or something like that. That's a matter of theological speculation or opinion uh, that may be contradictory to this. And so I want to encourage you to treat that with a grain of salt because people may be taking their own opinion a little bit too far um, or in directions that the church actually recommends that we don't go. And so um, I did my best to give you a comprehensive view of what the church offers us in this regard, which is still very interpretable so that you can then take that to form your good conscience, okay? So I wanted to give that um, that caveat. Um, I also want to say, um, as, as to start, the church can never and should never, according to canon law, support a particular candidate or a particular party ever. Um, we may have certain issues that align with certain parties, but um, we're pretty much right in the middle, uh, at least in the United States. Um, you know, we we have a lot of issues in the church that align more with moral conservatism, which might be aligned more with the Republican Party. And we have a lot of issues that align more with progressive economic policies to make sure that all the weak and vulnerable are provided for, which tends to align a little bit more with the Democratic Party. Now, that's also a matter of where you fit on the spectrum of right to left or moderate or independent or whatever. Um, but it's to say that the church can never and should never and will probably never fit within the confines of a political platform. And for that reason, um, the church is never going to and never should endorse a candidate or a party. And so if you ever see that happening, that's actually a violation of church teaching. And so um, to be aware of that, uh, the one thing that the church does seek is to follow Jesus and to bring about the common good for all people. And I know that's messy. I know that's way easier said than done. Uh, and results in every election uh, can obviously be very frustrating uh, because you're in this uh, moral deliberation that you feel like you either have to compromise or there's no good choice. Um, but I think this document from the United States bishops is really helpful in kind of helping you know, like, well, what do we need to prioritize in terms of our approach, um, how, we fo- how we form ourselves, how we approach certain issues, um, and just to be faithful to what the church has said on this issue. So 
Um, first of all, I think we have to address this question. Should our Christianity inform our politics? People will always throw this like there's separation between church and state. Yes, there is. So that being said, that still does not denounce the fact that we have freedom to exercise our religion by the First Amendment. Um, and in exercising our religion, we need to be informed about issues and bring our Christian faith to these issues, especially if our Christian faith is doing what it should, which is trying to advance the common good of all people. So yes, our Christianity should absolutely inform our politics. Um, Jesus died for our sins, but how did he die for our sins? He died as the victim of political assassination for addressing the hypocrisy of the socio-political and religious institutions of his day. Like he he obviously was willing to lay his life on the line for what he thought was right in a political atmosphere. And so if we're meant to be Christians, which means little Christs, like we're meant to follow in those footsteps as his disciples, we need to make sure that we are having that same tenacity, that same um, willingness to stand up for injustice that Jesus himself did. Um, the thing that Jesus speaks about the most in the New Testament um, in terms of an issue is not, um, is, is not, and I don't mean to say these issues aren't important, but it's not same-sex marriage. It's not abortion. It's not capital punishment. It's not a lot of these moral issues that are very important and very central to our understanding of what it means to have and protect the dignity of all human life. But the issue that's, you know, inarguable that he talked about the most in the New Testament in his public ministry is hypocrisy. And if you don't believe me, read the Sermon on the Mount uh, when he talks about the law and how uh, rigid people are with the law and how the Pharisees are with the law. That's Matthew chapters 5 to 7. And then read his like scathing treatment of the Pharisees uh, in Jerusalem when he enters Jerusalem and then gives this like just mic drop diatribe against the, the Pharisees. And that's Matthew 21 to 25, those chapters. Go read those and then you you will not be able to tell me that that's not like the primary thing that he is talking about, especially in that later section in Matthew 21 to 25. This is, you know, the thing that he spoke about the most. And so in order not to be hypocritical, you know, we need to be able to put our money where our mouth is. And if we really are being Christian to recognize what does it mean to advance the common good of all people, to be faithful citizens, and to recognize like our role in the political atmosphere to make sure that those rights of individuals are protected, their dignity is protected, the common good is being advanced as best as possible. So the United States bishops put out a document in, first in 2007 called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. It'll be linked in our show notes. I want to encourage you to read it. It has been edited and updated every four years since then. So it was uh, 2011 again, and then in 2015, and then most recently in 2019. So it is still very, very up to date with um, you know recent documents from the church, recent issues, things like that. Uh, here's some things, uh, just some things to inform this question, should our Christianity inform our politics from this document? In paragraph nine, it says this, the church's obligation to participate in shaping the moral character of society is a requirement of our faith, is a requirement of our faith, that we are required as Christians to do our best to shape the moral character of society, to advance the common good, to lead others to the truth with love, not in just what we say, but in what we do. 
Paragraph 11 says this, Some question whether it is appropriate for the church to play a role in political life. However, the obligation to teach the moral truths that should shape our lives, including our public lives, is central to the mission given to the church by Jesus Christ. Laymen should also know, this is elsewhere in the document, should know that it is generally the function of their well-formed Christian conscience to see that the divine law is inscribed in the life of the earthly city. Oh, that's in from Gaudium Espes, which is a document from the Second Vatican Council, but it's quoted in this a bishop's document. So it's obvious from this document, like, yes, our Christianity should be, you know, it, it's not something we compartmentalize for an hour on Sunday, and then we have our political opinions. It's like, no, like, so when people ask me, are you a Republican or a Democrat? I say, I'm a Catholic, because I... I stand for what the church stands for. I stand for people, for all people, um, for all of their rights, for dignity in every stage of life. And I recognize that that puts me always in a frustrating position when it comes to politics and voting. And I'm always, always, always going to feel like I'm picking between two evils or two um, equally morally um, terrible situations oftentimes. But I have to really look with scrutiny and um, with a well-formed conscience on these different issues and try and ask myself um, what is going to bring about the most common good. I think a mistake that most people make is they look for their uh, Messiah in politics. You know, we live in a post-Christian world, but that doesn't mean people aren't still looking for Jesus. People look for a Messiah in everything, in their career, in their relationships, and politics is a huge one. And you see this in how people present their candidates and issues. They present the candidate they support as like a Jesus figure, like they're going to fix everything. Their policies are great. They're perfect. Let me look up every single possible criticism of this candidate and have a defense for it. And let me then demonize the other side as the antichrist. Isn't that not true? Like that's what we do. And that's a huge problem because we already have a Messiah, you guys, like it's Jesus. Like we can't expect that from the state. We can't. Um, We have to recognize that they are in their authority um, because God is permitting it. And we have to approach it with honor and respect. But we also have to stand up for issues of injustice and be faithful to our true Messiah, our true Savior, which is Jesus Christ. So how should we go about this approach to bringing our Christianity into the political sphere? Uh, Let's look, first of all, at the honor and respect that is asked of us um, for public authority. This is in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subordinate to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, exist have been established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority opposes what God has appointed, and those who oppose it will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear to good conduct, to good conduct, but to evil. Do you wish to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval from it, for it is a servant of God for your good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword without purpose. It is the servant of God to inflict wrath on the evildoer. Therefore, it is necessary to be subject not only because of the wrath, but only but also because of conscience. This is why you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all their dues, taxes to whom taxes are due, toll to whom toll is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor 
is due. So I know that was a longer bit of a section, but it's basically saying like, look, if someone's in public authority, like recognize like God permitted them to be there. And even if there is evil happening or things that you don't like, God will bring a greater greater good out of that. I would say there is room to interpret this passage also when it's encouraging us to make sure we have no fear if we are doing good. And if someone is doing evil, they bring injustice and judgment upon them to recognize like, if you're in a dictatorship, if you're in something like a Hitler type of government, you're obviously not to meant not meant to have respect for the terrible things that are going on. Um, so this is kind of like along the lines like um, have respect for the office, you know, um, rather than the the person, but recognize that the person isn't just. Uh, the issues that they support or don't support or the evil that may be done by a regime because it's it's especially in the United States like we have nothing close to a dictatorial possibility of a government because of checks and balances because of Congress and Senate and the the president only has so much power and so recognizing like as a whole there are a lot of people involved a lot of people who would be culpable and also who can make sure that things have accountability. That's why we have the impeachment process. That's why we have the judicial branch and things like that. And so it can look very doom and gloom if you just watch the news and interpret the media because the media plays on this idea that like we need to vocalize these extremist voices because otherwise we don't get any viewership. And that's really unfortunate. So um, I guess what I'm saying with that passage is to recognize like treat this realm as best you can with honor and respect, even if it's a heated issue, even if there's injustice being done, because as I've said in previous episodes, I don't believe, I wholeheartedly don't believe that anyone wakes up in the morning, save a very small number of people, wakes up in the morning and is actually seeking to do great evil every single day. I think intentions that people have are mostly predominantly 99.9% of the time good. It's just been distorted in some way or they've been um, led to act out of fear or out of what's the best possible good or they're dealing with mental health issues or they're in just a hopeless situation. Um, And when all of that is put on display on media and anyone who wants to with zero experience or background or education on the topic can provide commentary on it, then of course it's going to seem like everything's falling apart and everything's terrible, you know? So uh, what I would encourage you to do, the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, they have this initiative for the 20 2020 election. It's called the Civilize It Pledge, where you can make a pledge to um, be civil and to try and build up the good in other people and try and approach a healthy dialogue with people you may disagree with and in the political sphere this election cycle with honor and respect. Uh, the link for that is going to be in our show notes. It's at www.wearesaltandlight.org slash civilize hyphen it. And if you just look up USCCB Civilize It um, on Google, it should come up. Um, So with that being said, like we need to approach this with honor and respect. But I think a lot of times we, um, you know, we're trying to have this activism and involvement on a level that is so far disconnected from our geographic Uh, and life reality that we forget that we are being called to perform acts of justice like where we are. So I'm not saying we shouldn't be activists. We absolutely should be activists uh, and be vocal when things um, of political injustice are happening in the world and in our country. Um, However, I think the first responsibility of a Christian is to recognize like where is the injustice right where I am? Like, how am I going to speak and act for injustice here, now, in this time and place, in my family, in my friendships, in my local community? Uh, All of the prophets 
the what main thing they warn against is unfaithfulness to God's covenant, but second to that is injustice. Like they're always talking about um, that they're demanding a response from people who have gone away from God and allow injustice to take place in their countries, in their in their hometowns, that the response demanded is that there needs to be a personal commitment and action. That punishment is promised by God for those people who um, are committing injustice. We don't do not need to be the ones who enact it. Um, go read Isaiah chapter 10, the first three verses of that, and you'll see an example of that there. Um, and so this document from the USCCB, they have four main emphases that we need to be aware of, four main things that we need to be um, seeking to support or to strive for in all our political uh, avenues or uh, anything we vote for. And those are these four things, that we need to be seeking the dignity of the human person at all stages of life, that we need to be promoting the common good, uh, that we need to be um, aware of the Catholic principle of subsidiary, that everything is kind of connected and that, you know, the, the individual is a subsidiary of the family, which is a subsidiary of society, which is a subsidiary of the world, and to make sure that we're providing for healthy um, contact and dignity in those different areas. Um, and also, um, well, work and labor is more for the common good and things like that. And then lastly is solidarity, making sure that we are in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are weak, poor, vulnerable, um, who are uh, just have access to less than we do, uh, even if they're not right in front of us. Um, so our response that's being asked in these four emphases is prayer and action. And, I, you know, it drives me a little crazy when I see online people saying, like, oh, your thoughts and prayers aren't going to do anything. Like, I think that's just that's just a secular um, un- misunderstanding of the power of prayer. Um, we can pray and act, and you should pray and act. And I would lead with prayer because then when you do act, it's going to come with more gentleness and more understanding and more giftedness from what the, what the Lord is actually asking you to do or say in those different situations. Um, so please, if you're not praying every day for different issues, um, but you have no problem yelling about them on Facebook or in a public sphere, um, then part of me wonders if you really, if you're a Christian, like if you really want there to be a resolution. Because, um, sorry, that was Siri for some reason. Um, If you really want a resolution to happen, because God really is the one who has the power to create like global change at the snap of his fingers. But he wants us to collaborate with him. And part of that collaboration is inviting him into a space, is asking him for the things that we need, is praying. He's not going to force us. He's not going to make us little robots in a perfect utopia where there's no room for courage, sacrifice, bravery, camaraderie, anything like that. He wants us to participate in community and in creation and in collaborating with him to make Uh, what Matthew Kelly calls in some of his recent books, holy moments happen. Um, And so we do that by leading with prayer. And then the action part of that comes across in voting, in education, and in advocacy for or against certain things, advocating for or against certain things. Um, This is from the Catechism um, of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1913 uh, through 1915. I'll read you just an excerpt. Um, It is necessary that all participate each according to his position and role in promoting the common good. This obligation is inherent in the dignity of the human person. As far as possible, citizens should take an active part in public life. So this is not just meant to be something we yell and scream about or that we just simply pray about. All those things we need to pray, 
We need to advocate and be educated, but we need to do it in a sensible way, and we need to act where we can act, support causes that we can support, candidates, issues that we feel will best promote the common good or best bring about and honor the dignity of all human people in our society, but also looking at who is in my community that needs to be served. Um, I think there are probably a lot of people who have a lot of fire and passion for issues online and post constantly and stay really well informed on political issues when it comes to immigration or homelessness or you know, poverty or whatever it may be, uh, but none of them will get up out of their house, off their couch, away from their computer and go serve at a food pantry or in a soup kitchen on a weekend um, because it just doesn't occur to them. And I think there's something wrong with that. Um, so I also think there's something wrong with people just going and doing service in their local community and then just ignoring what's happening on a national scale. So the, the reverse of that is also problematic. However, I think they, they've started in the right place. And so that may be out of a sense of ignorance or a sense of, you know, like, well, I want to do what God is calling me to do right here and right now. And that's great. But I think eventually we need to really be asking ourselves, like, Am I, am I using the power that I have as a voter and as someone who may have a platform or um, who is articulate, who has a social media presence to advocate for issues now that I have this real lived experience for acting on them in my local community? And that really, that kind of advocacy based on experience and testimony, I think it can go a lot further than just yelling and screaming about something. So anyways, that may be just my own opinion, you know, so that was newsflash opinion part, but that was from the catechism. Um, and as I said before, you're not voting for your Messiah. We're Catholic. We're Catholic first, Catholic foremost. Um, it says uh, in this document, the USCCB document, paragraph 14, as citizens, we should be guided more by our moral convictions than by our attachment to a political party or interest group. When necessary, our participation should help transform the party to which we belong. We should not let the party transform us in such a way that we neglect or deny fundamental moral truths or approve intrinsically evil acts. I see this constantly where people let their republicanism or their de democratism, I don't know, their, their republic tendencies or their democratic tendencies supersede their religious tendencies uh, or their religious affiliation. And I think that is a huge tragedy and it's a huge misunderstanding of what it means to live as a Christian disciple of Jesus Christ. What that means is like, he's your savior, he's your Messiah. This is the acts, the act of justice, the act of salvation for the entire world that should motivate and drive us in everything that we do, everything that we support, everything that we stand against and for. Uh, and when we relegate that or kind of sell that away to a, an imperfect group of people who have special interests and lobbies and kind of evil intentions sometimes um, that do shady things behind closed doors, I'm talking about both sides. This, is, this happens on both sides equally. Um, then I think we are missing the point. So the four things that we are asked to do in, um, in helping those four main emphases, so remember those emphases, dignity of the human person, the common good, subsidiary, and solidarity. And under solidarity is also you know, things like climate change and care for the environment. They make a, a big point about that in this document as well. Um, but the four things they call us to do in order to support those four main avenues that we need to be fighting for, those are kind of like the four highlight issues, Here's the four things we need to do. Have a well-formed conscience. Develop the virtue of prudence. Do good and avoid evil. 
and make moral choices. And I know those last two sound similar, but stay with me because they are a little bit different. So uh, number one, a well-formed conscience. You should do things not because a party says so. You should know your faith and know what you support because we will be held accountable. I can probably say a whole lot more about that, but I think like we need to be very well-educated when it comes to a particular bill, issue, platform, party, candidate, whatever it is, and that when you're dealing with a candidate, you're not dealing with a single issue. You're dealing with a whole scope of a platform, a whole approach, and that we need to have a well-formed conscience about our faith, like what are the morals Uh, that are revealed to us by natural law, divine law, by revelation, by the truths that just exist. Like we all know it's not okay to murder people. Like nobody had to tell us that, you know, like that's just something we know. And even if it wasn't the law, we probably wouldn't do it because there's something built into us. So how are we navigating that interior conscience and developing it so we know when we're making a good decision or a bad decision? Like, do you have a conscience, a little voice in your head that is articulate and knows when to speak and you know like okay no this is rubbing me the wrong way and I know that this isn't something I should support or yes this is something that I feel is a passionate issue of justice and it is the moral thing for me to do to support this those are things I think we have to pay attention to Um, number two the virtue of prudence Um, prudence is knowing how to do the most right thing in a given situation so I think this is really Uh, the huge virtue we need to pray for and really develop in most political situations, which feels like, at least for me, I don't know if you relate to this, I feel like most years, most voting cycles, most, you know, runs for office, I'm stuck with two terrible decisions. Um, And instead of feeling like I can really be passionate about a candidate or a party or an issue or whatever, I feel like I'm always choosing between Uh, two evils and trying to figure out which is going to be the less evil. You know, that's just kind of what I'm always faced with. Um, That's my own personal experience of it. I just tend to not like the way politics are presented and the way the news media takes it over and just kind of decides who the front runners are before the primaries even happen. Um, But anyway, and then all the shady stuff that I know that goes on behind closed doors. So how do you develop that that, uh, virtue of prudence? I think being assertive in our choices Having a well-formed conscience and acting on it will help us develop that virtue and praying for it and also not letting other people make our opinions for us. Like, you know, listening to what other people say. But if you believe anything, and I'm, I'm including Catholicism in this, if you believe anything solely because someone else told you to, you should stop believing that right now and you should go find out for yourself. Everything, any truth, any religious truth, any political position, any opinion that you have, if you believe it solely because somebody else told you to, and you haven't looked at the evidence, you haven't investigated it, you haven't uh, taken a dive into the context or the real lived reality of whatever that issue is, if you haven't grappled with the philosophical or theological questions yourself and gone to the sources, and you just believe what some YouTuber or online influencer said or what your friend or your family said, you need to bring those things into question because eventually they'll be brought into question whether you like it or not. And if it's standing on you know fragile foundation, it's going to crumble. You know, So I want to encourage you to develop that virtue of prudence uh, by developing a well-formed conscience and acting upon it. Number three, do good and avoid evil. We cannot support intrinsic evils. Um, this comes from... The doctrinal note on some questions regarding the participation of Catholics in political life. This is paragraph number four. 
It must be noted also that a well-formed Christian conscience does not permit one to vote for a political program or an individual law which contradicts the fundamental contents of faith and morals. The Christian faith is an integral unity, and thus it is incoherent to isolate some particular element to the detriment of the whole of Catholic doctrine. A political commitment to a single isolated aspect of church's social doctrine does not exhaust one's responsibility toward the common good. So, for instance, this is talking about a particular law or a particular program. It doesn't say candidate here or party because those are much more complicated. But when you're looking at a particular law or a program to recognize you can't just approach this with a one-issue mentality. And I know a lot of Catholics who are like, I just am always going to vote, vote pro-life. And what that means is who's against abortion. And I think that's very noble and very good. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And it's actually encouraged in some interpretations of some of these passages to do that. But I think political parties are much more complicated and political platforms are more than one issue. And yes, it does say in these documents, this, this document later on, as I'll read, some issues have a greater moral weight than others. But what all of this is saying is you cannot vote for someone solely because of one issue. You can vote against someone solely because of one issue. That is what some of these documents are saying. But you cannot support one political party or person solely because they support one issue that, that agrees with Catholic moral theology or moral teaching. You need to look at the grand scope and see, okay, who's going to bring about the most the most moral good? You cannot isolate. Like if someone is like against abortion, but they disagree with Catholic teaching in every other area of Catholic moral teaching, the church would say, you cannot simply just support that person and say you're doing the Catholic thing in doing so and exercising your political um, right and bringing your Christianity into it, you cannot vote for that person just because they support one issue you agree with. You have to look at the grand scope. And yes, abortion is something that is listed along with a couple other things that have a higher moral weight because of the amount of loss of life and damage it can do to society and to a person's individual body. But um, we have to keep that in mind, that it's not a reason to vote for someone. It can be a reason to not vote for someone. So I hope I'm making that distinction correctly. Um, well, I know I'm making it correctly. I'm hoping I'm articulating it to you and you are understanding it correctly. Um, and if you have questions about that, go read that document. Um, that's the doctrinal note on some questions regarding the participation of Catholics in political life, paragraph four. Um, so that's about doing good and avoiding evil, recognizing that it, our role to do good is to recognize what are we voting for and not just having this, uh, I'm voting against everything that doesn't agree with this. So you're doing good and you're avoiding evil. So we're not about just like doing one thing, supporting one issue. We're about doing good, advancing the common good and recognizing that we want to avoid evil and intrinsic evil acts at all costs. And lastly, we need to make moral decisions. This is where I think this document is really, really, really great. So I'm going to quote several paragraphs here, 34, 35, 36, 37, and 42. Um, I want to encourage you to read this whole document because I think it's the best collection of all of the global church's documents on politics and voting, and then it's a specific authoritative um, piece or document for us in the United States from our bishops, and we need to pay attention to that a lot more than we pay attention to Joe Schmo with a podcast 
hi, my name's Matt, Joe Schmo. But I mean, I'm, I'm trying to articulate what the bishops have taught. But I think a lot of people have opinions that other people will elevate that goes beyond the authority that they have. So this is from our bishops, and I think it's really good. So paragraph 34, when it comes to making moral decisions, says this. Catholics often face difficult choices about how to vote. Yeah, definitely. Um, (laughs) This is why it is so important to vote according to a well-formed conscience that perceives the proper relationship among moral goods. A Catholic cannot vote for a candidate who favors a policy promoting an intrinsically evil act, such as abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, deliberately subjecting workers to the poor or subhuman living conditions, redefining marriage in ways that violate its essential meaning, racist behavior, or if the voter's intent is to support that position. So recognize that last sentence there, if the voter's intent is to support that position. In such cases, a Catholic would be guilty of formal cooperation in grave evil. At the same time, a voter should not use a candidate's opposition to an intrinsic evil to justify indifference or inattentiveness to other important moral issues involving human life and dignity. So what this is saying is you cannot vote for a a person with a political platform that supports more abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, Um, things like that, because you want more of those things. So you can, what this is saying technically is that you can vote for someone whose platform allows for abortion, but you cannot be voting for them because of that. There needs to be a common good apart from that and there are other policies that outweighs that support for that particular issue. And support for that particular issue, say if someone is supporting abortion and the availability of abortion, that there's a lot of depth there. Someone might be not advancing current abortion law to allow for more abortions, but they also may not be, um, you know, trying to get less abortions to happen. And that would kind of be a moral wash because we're looking at advancing the common good, right? And so if they're not contributing to greater moral um, evil in that area, we might then be free to look at what they're doing in the rest of their political platform and then bring that up against a candidate who might be trying to advocate for less abortion, which is a good thing. That would be promoting the common good. So that's something we have to keep in mind. So I'm not saying that you should vote you know, for or against these certain issues, but to recognize if you're voting for an intrinsically moral evil issue, and that's why you're supporting that candidate, like I want to vote for this person because they want more abortions, then that is evil and something we cannot be doing as Catholics. However, just because someone is against that evil act doesn't mean we completely go against the whole rest of their their platform. We have to make sure that the rest of that is also upholding the dignity of human life and advancing the common good. So I hope I made that distinction clear. Paragraph 35, there may be times when a Catholic who rejects a candidate's unacceptable position, even on policies promoting an intrinsically evil act, may reasonably decide decide to vote for that candidate for other morally grave reasons. Voting in this way would be permissible only for truly grave moral reasons, not to advance narrow interests or partisan preferences or to ignore the fundamental moral evil. So this document is saying you can vote for someone whose policies promote an intrinsically evil act because you know you are not voting for them to support that evil act, but you are avoiding voting for them because there is greater evil potential in the platform of the opposing party in different issues. So that is what this document is saying. However, 
uh, paragraph 36, when all candidates hold a position that promotes an intrinsically evil act, the conscientious, conscientious voter faces a dilemma, obviously. The voter may decide to take the extraordinary step of not voting for any candidate or, after careful deliberation, may decide to vote for the candidate deemed less likely to advance such a morally flawed position and more likely to pursue other authentic human goods. This is kind of what I was talking about when I feel like I have to vote for the lesser of two evils. You just need to change your perspective. I need to change my perspective on that and see, okay, who is going to advance the common good the most in all of these areas that we hold as important in, as Catholics? Um, so that's kind of a, a method of perspective. Paragraph 37, in making these decisions, it is essential for Catholics to be guided by a well-formed conscience, there's that phrase again, that recognizes that all issues do not carry the same moral weight. Remember, I mentioned that before. And that the moral obligation to oppose policies promoting intrinsically evil acts has a special claim on our consciences and our actions. These decisions should take into account a candidate's commitments, character, integrity, and ability to influence a given issue. In the end, this is a decision to be made by each Catholic guided by a conscience formed by Catholic moral teaching. And then it says in paragraph 42, which is an elaboration on this, I think, as Catholics, we are not single issue voters. A candidate's position on a single issue does not, is not sufficient to guarantee a voter's support. Yet, if a candidate's position on a single issue promotes an intrinsically evil act, such as legal abortion, redefining marriage, uh, racist behavior, a voter may legitimately disqualify a candidate from receiving support. So, what does all that mean? It means this is really difficult. <laughs> and, and it means that we, again, we can vote for either party, is I, I think what I'm saying here, yes, you, you can vote for either party, but if you're voting for a party that supports things that we would consider as intrinsic evil moral acts, you need to be doing so not out of a desire to advance those acts, but out of a recognition that that party, that platform, that candidate, their platform will advance the common good more so than the opposing party. <clears throat> that being said, you cannot simply vote for a candidate simply because they agree with one issue that is parallel to Catholic moral teaching. So you cannot vote for a candidate just because they are against abortion. You also have to bring up to scrutiny their character, their integrity, all the other issues in their political platform. And so you may be really frustrated right now because you were hoping this issue, this, this episode would help uh, give you clarity on what issues to vote for, what candidate to align with, what parties to go for. And the church is never going to make a distinction on that. And I'm not going to make a distinction on that. You can have a well-reasoned, good-formed conscience and act prudently and morally to do good and avoid evil in voting for either party or any candidate because it, it's such a gray area situation and it depends on their specific platform on specific issues and looking at that collectively and putting it up against each other and seeing which of these advances the common good in all areas more than the other. And let me look at different issues that hold more moral weight than others, things that will end human life or really um, are causing a lot of suffering in people's lives. And this document does in several places highlight that abortion is one of those issues, euthanasia, assisted suicide, um, the 
um, poor um, treatment of workers in subhuman living conditions, redefining marriage, racism, all those things. And those are things that have been accused or affiliated with both parties. Um, and so I think that just puts us in a very sensitive position and we just need to be really well informed. So I'll share with you one last paragraph from this um, document. This is paragraph 58. The church is involved in the political process, but is not partisan. The church cannot champion any candidate or party. Our cause is the defense of human life and dignity and the protection of the weak and vulnerable. So I think if we have that lens when we approach politics, when we approach voting, it's not going to mean it's going to be any less messy, but I think it will help guide our conscience and maybe open up opportunities for us to learn more, to vote differently, maybe to discern not to vote. I know that might be an unpopular opinion, but it would be better sometimes in certain situations not to vote or to vote third party, which many people would say is throwing away your vote in certain states. And I would say, well, it might be an action politically of throwing away your vote, but morally it might be the best thing possible for you to do. I'm not going to recommend you do any of those things, but I offer you what the church has given us through the authority of the bishops, given to them by the Pope, given to him by Jesus himself, in the un unbroken line of succession of popes and the apostolic authority we have in the Catholic Church. And that is saying no more and no less than what the church has offered us in this document, which quotes many other documents that the church has put out there on politics and voting and faithful citizenship. And so, again, I want to encourage you one last time, please go to our show notes. Our show notes are very condensed and simple. Um, look at the different things that we um, cite in there, but especially this document from the USCCB, it's called Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. It doesn't take long to read. And I think anyone who is remotely Catholic and wants to answer that call, that demand, that commission for us to bring our faith into the political sphere needs to read it. It's just our responsibility. So uh, I know this is a difficult topic, and I know it's going to be a difficult election cycle. It seems like it always is, and it's just getting worse and worse and more and more difficult. So I want to encourage you to operate with honor and respect. Do what you can locally. And then let that inform your global expression and your more wider expression, uh, standing up against certain issues of injustice to do both and to have a well-formed conscience uh, and, and know that the, these things are not uh, separable. You know, we need to bring our morality into the, the moral atmosphere of the political world because they, they just they overlap far too, too readily, too much for us to, to not do that. And so if you're frustrated, you need some prayer, you need some intercessory prayer, uh, I think the best possible saint for us to turn to is St. Thomas More. Uh, St. Thomas More, if you want to learn about him, watch the movie A Man for All Seasons. It's one of the best saint movies ever made, and it was like a professional movie made with like real Hollywood actors um, about this saint's life. He lived um, from February 7th, 1478 uh, to July 6th, 1535. So he was alive right during the time of the Protestant Reformation um, and a, a very big time in the religious uh, landscape of the world. His feast day is June 22nd. And I don't know why, because most saints' feast days are on a significant day for them. That may be when he was imprisoned or something like that. Um, but I haven't been able to find a significant date for that. I just found that interesting. But he's the patron saint of politicians. So if there's any saint that needs a lot, uh, it's doing a lot of work already without you asking, it's this guy. So I'm sure he can uh, spare some prayers for you and your sanity as you approach this voting and election cycle. Um, but he was born the son of a lawyer and uh, a son of a lawyer turned judge. So he was very well educated. Uh, he served as a page to the Archbishop 
of Canterbury um, in uh, in England, who um, was the Lord Chancellor. It was a special role for the the king, uh, political role, um, and that exposed him to Renaissance humanism. It later influenced him when he wrote one of his most famous books, which is called Utopia. If you've ever read that in school, um, he studied law and he um, he be, remained a layman. He didn't become a priest like uh, many saints of this time, uh, priests or religious. Um, he was a layperson. Uh, he did that at his father's encouragement. He did consider religious life, but in 1505, when he was 27, he married a woman named Jane Colt. Uh, he educated her. He actually educated all of his daughters, all of the women in his family. He was very passionate about that, um, which was a very rare opportunity for women to have at that time. Um, so he educated his wife. They had four children, um, but she died only six years after uh, them being married. So she was basically pregnant the whole time is what I'm getting from this. But um, uh, he remarried very quickly. He remarried a widow in order to help him run his household. Um, and it was so quick that he needed a dispensation from um, the the religious authorities in the area. Um, but he did that so he could um, have someone to help run the house, to have a maternal figure to raise his children. And he also raised that widow's daughter as his own and educated all of them. And so it was, it was a really, I think, noble thing to do to keep that structure of the family, kind of that principle of subsidiary that's sometimes hard to define, that we're meant to support as Catholics, uh, to, to hold fast to that. I thought that was a really cool thing that he did. Um, he eventually became the secretary and personal advisor to King Henry VIII uh, and served in pretty much every political position that you could serve in before he became the Lord Chancellor himself in 1529. And that's still a position that exists actually in um, in the UK. It actually technically outranks the prime minister, which is interesting. Um, so anyway, um, he opposed the Reformation. He was uh, faithfully Catholic. He actually prevented Protestant literature from being imported to England um, on one occasion, if not more. And in 1530, he refused to sign a letter um, by the churchmen of England, the leading churchmen and aristocrats, that was asking Pope Clement VII to annul Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And so if you know anything about Henry VIII, you know he had six wives, um, Kate and Jane, and two Kates again. He got married six times, but the Pope would not grant him a divorce. Um, he uh, Thomas More didn't openly reject the king's actions at this point. He kept his opinions private, but he did refuse to sign this this edict or this request. And so um, on May 16th, two years later, More resigned from his role as chancellor, but he ended up remaining still in Henry's favor despite his refusal to sign this uh, document. However, the next year in 1533, Moore refused to attend the coronation of Henry VIII's second wife, Anne Boleyn, as the Queen of England. And that refusal to attend was widely interpreted by people um, as kind of like a, an insult against her and uh, against King Henry. And he took um, that uh, – he took – action this time against Thomas. And so um, he brought Thomas up on fraudulent charges of treason, where um, and Thomas still refused to acknowledge his uh, the king's marriage to Anne or to sign any oath. He also refused to answer any question that would condemn him or um, cause him to uh, be found guilty of any charges. He re um, preferred to remain silent. Uh, and sometimes I think that's the best thing that we can do. I think that's something we can definitely learn from him and his story. Um, Anyway, uh, the jury took only 15 minutes uh, to find him guilty. Um, Henry VIII at this point had declared himself the head of the Church of England. He had, 
you know, pretty universal power politically and religiously at this point. He had a lot of influence. Nobody really wanted to say no to him because if he did, he ended up in Thomas's position, um, which was he was sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, which was the usual punishment for traitors who were not in the nobility. However, the king commuted this execution to decapitation, which was considered more merciful. It was just very quick and quick and easy and less humiliating. Um, so the execution took place on July 6th, 1535, and uh, he is now ironically venerated as a church in the as a saint in the Anglican Church, the Church of England. I don't know how that happened or why, but that is so ironic to me because it seems like the fact that you still exist as a church means that you probably shouldn't be <laughs> venerating the person who completely disagreed with your foundation and everything that were like the founding principles for why King Henry VIII started this church. But interesting. Um, so I hear some quotes from him that I think um, glean, we can glean from some of these actions we need to take. Um, we need to be informed about issues and have a well-informed conscience. St. Thomas More said this, one of the greatest problems of our time is that many are sco- are schooled but few are educated. I'll say that again. One of the greatest problems of our time is that many are schooled, but few are educated. So get informed. Do what you can where you are. Here's what St. Thomas More says about that. The ordinary acts we practice every day at home are of more importance to the soul than their simplicity might suggest. And then remember that God is your savior and not a party candidate platform or issue. Here's what St. Thomas More says about that. Anyone who campaigns for public office becomes disqualified for holding any office at all. (laughs) So it's a recognition that humans are not perfect. We already know who is. That's Jesus. He is already our savior. He already died for our sins. So let's remember who's most important when it comes to devoting our time, energy, our lives to support and the issues we seek to support, uh, defend, advocate for or against, and how we seek to Uh, Have a well-informed conscience and perform actions against injustice and for the common good to promote the dignity of human life in our local area, period. That was a long run-on sentence, but thank you for staying with it. Thank you for staying with this episode. I really hope it was beneficial to you. I did a lot of research on this, and um, I know it might ruffle some feathers because people have very ingrained and entrenched political opinions. But again, what I wanted to do was present what the church has said about this for us to glean and interpret and to answer that call in those four areas, to have a well-informed conscience, to exercise the virtue of prudence, to do good and avoid evil, and to make moral choices, and to bring that into the political sphere. Because I think if we do that, we'll uh, change the landscape of voting. There are so many Catholics in the world, um, two billion to be exact. Um, That's a third. You know, that's a huge uh, potential majority shift, you know, um, in one direction or another for issues. And so if we could all be faithful to what the authority of the church from Jesus Christ is asking us to do, I think we could make a real profound change in the world uh, to promote the common good and uh, for all people in all stages of life. So um, if you have questions, if you want me to follow up or uh, highlight a particular approach or issue to this, please let me know. uh, And please send us topics or suggestions for future episodes. The highest compliment you could pay us, as I always say, is to share this podcast on social media and with your friends and family. Let us know how you're enjoying it. And if you haven't yet, please rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, wherever you are listening. So it helps other people find this podcast. Maybe you listen to it on our website. So please go find it on one of those um, platforms, excuse me, and leave a rating or a review because that helps other people find great um, Catholic podcasts like this one. So or at least I hope. And lastly, if you'd like to um, 
support this podcast financially. If this podcast has helped you grow in your faith at all, um, you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. I think everybody's got a dollar a month. If you have the means to listen to a podcast, you've got a dollar a month. So um, if it's helped you in any way, um, I think we need to be better about praising one another and supporting one another. I support several other podcasts that I really am benefited by, and I would encourage you to do the same, not just for us, but for any podcasts that have helped you grow in your relationship with God or just helped benefited you as a person. And so um, go to our website, Mana foodforthought.com all spelled out and click the Patreon button um, uh, right there on the homepage and then if you don't click the Patreon button you click the other Patreon button or the other button next to it that'll take you to our website where all of our blogs our old vlogs and all of our podcast episodes live as well Uh, and so please make sure you're uh, just utilizing that there's a lot of great stuff on there But that's all I have for you. So know that we are praying for you. I hope you're having a wonderful, blessed, and fruitful Lent. And let us know how we can support you better, how we can answer your questions. And know until next time, we will see you in the Eucharist. God bless you.